I could just add to uh, this morning, um, just for avoidance of doubt, Matthew 18 says this, uh, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. Well, it's amazing how many people I mentioned last week that uh, next week at sex said, oh, I'll definitely come for that one. Uh, That's what we turn our attention to, relationships and community. And just as an aside, both readers this morning have uh, tripped over the word immorality. I don't know if that means anything. (laughs) Try it yourselves when you read at home. Okay, so uh, a couple of weeks ago we started this series um, looking at the issues surrounding living and love and faith um, on the theme in the mini-ministry. It was welcome, and you may remember we had a big cutout of the church out there with lots of hands on. And we return to that theme today. In his book, Beautiful Resistance, John Tyson writes about hospitality. And I quote him here for a moment. The Greek word for hospitality is beautiful, philoxenia. It is a compound uh, combining philos, which is a word which means friend, relating to the word filio, which is the word for non-erotic love, and xenos, which means foreigner. Rather than fear the other, hospitality is love for the other. The reason God calls us to this kind of love is that this is the way he has loved us. And he goes on by describing um, how we can look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 12. Um, Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. He says separate, excluded, foreigners, hopeless, In the story of redemption, we are the strangers. We are the outsiders. We are the other. And that means each and every one of us. Hospitality wasn't one of Jesus' strategies. It was the strategy. And it said he was either going to a meal, he was at a meal, or he just left one um, in the Gospels. And Tyson suggests that an environment of hospitality plus a transformed identity means a new humanity. A radical new inclusion, which was the Archbishop's phrase five years ago, means a radical welcome and radical discipleship. So the call of today's talk applies to each and every one of us, whomever we are. So now a story. It's 1917, and Connie meets and marries Clifford. After a month-long honeymoon, Clifford went to war. He was not her first lover, but she was content that she had found her mate and her place in society. Clifford was severely injured, and he was a sexual partner no more because he was paralysed from the waist down. This is much for them both to deal with. 
Clifford finds a new lease of life as a writer and meets a new crowd of adoring friends, leaving Connie especially isolated, particularly when he hires a personal nurse on whom he depends. Connie meets Oliver. They become first sexual partners, then lovers. And the story ends with both seeking divorce so that they may be together to raise their child when born. And so far in the previous two weeks, we've looked at the need for truth to be upheld as received by the church. And we've also explored the creation scriptures and Jesus' affirmation of them. Marriage is between a man and a woman for life and is the proper place for sexual activity. The vows made before God in holy matrimony include forsaking all others and in sickness and in health. Marriage is a good gift with many benefits and we need to help people enter it prepared for the commitments that they make. And any sexual activity outside of marriage falls outside of God's plan for the use of that good gift. It's evident that all of the named characters from our story, which you may recognize as Lady Chatterley's lover, fall short of God's expectation. There is much to repent of from all of them, including Clifford's desertion of Connie, and there but for the grace of God go all of us. Flee from sexual immorality, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Sex matters to God. It is his gift given in the beginning. It was the first command. Paul knew that there was much sexual license in Corinth. It was a major port with lots of passing merchant trade. It became a hotbed of desire such that Corinthian was a description of sexual freedom. The sexualized culture that Paul is writing into was both permissive and pervasive. The word that Paul uses is the same one we heard Jesus use last week in Matthew, porneia. And it means a basket of sexual activities outside of one man, one woman sex within marriage. And Paul's injunction is to flee from it. The Greek word literally means to escape or to run away. God's intent for sex is within marriage, and it is good. Yet today we look around and the idea of sex as God and idol are everywhere. Billboards, TV dramas, internet porn, social media short reels. Surveys of sexual behaviour show that sex is no longer the culmination of a relationship. It is now commonly the beginning of one. Sexual expectations have skewed through post-Fifty Shades internet porn, where many young men are brought up to believe that domination and threatening physicality is the norm, and young girls are told to accept it. This is a long way from the shared intimacy of the ish and the isha we saw last week in Genesis, 1, Genesis 2. Adam and his isa, his partner and co-worker, Newspaper stories and TV dramas of threesomes and polyamory, stable relationships with more than one person, are increasing. Rather than a good gift from God, the narrative is that it is my right to have sex. In an article in Via Media News, 
the author extolled the importance of physical intimacy within uh, his own marriage and then goes on to argue that the same thing is the right of all people. Paul would disagree with all of this. Flee from this, he would say. So continuing verses 1 to 2 of chapter 7. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul's assumption is that sex is between a man and a wife. And here he's answering a question from the Corinthians who, in the face of all this sex that was going on, the sexual temperature in the surrounding culture, people went the other way. Should the response be to abstain from sex, even if married? These aesthetic voices became louder in criticism of those around them in the church. And Paul responds in verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Paul may sound like he is towing a very traditional line, but to the Greco-Roman world, what he says is radically countercultural. Paul says that a woman has no authority over her own body. This would be heard well by Greco-Roman men who could pretty much do what they liked with whomever they liked. But Paul is not advocating rape or domestic abuse, but instead mutuality. Paul is saying to the over-sexualized world of Corinth, have sex, it's good, but in its place and for its ordained purpose. Paul not only says that women's bodies are for their men, but also that men's bodies are for their women. Wait, hang on a minute. What did he say? Wives have authority over their husbands' bodies. That is so countercultural. This is Paul's consistent message. We see the advice he gave to the church in Ephesus. Chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Genesis 2 there again. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Paul is often presented as a misogynistic preacher, but That's completely wrong. Paul both upholds the partnership role of women as man's easer, helper, or partner, and the mutuality of marriage. It's a partnership counter to the pervading norm at the time. Submission is mutual and means both loving and respecting. Now in verse 5, do not deprive each other. Sex drive is powerful, overwhelming for some. Jackie Pullinger says, I am called, not driven. It's the devil that drives. The Holy Spirit calls. We are mind, body, and soul, all intertwined. Yet the sexual impulse can make the body overcome the mind and possibly even the soul. 
the mini-ministry last week was about Paul asking, why do I do what I do not want to do? The Holy Spirit yields fruit, especially the ninth one, which is self-control. That can mean control over the driven urges of the body. The urges, known as libido, and the capacity to exercise them fade and lessen over time in most people. The commitment in marriage is in sickness and in health and forsaking all others. Clifford, in sickness, was incapable of having sex. Did he become less of a husband? Did he become less of a man? Was Connie justified in taking a lover in contravention of those vows, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others? For humans to identify solely by how, how often, and with whom we have sex is a distraction from God's identification of us as his children called to holiness. If sex outside marriage is a sin, then it can be repented of and we will receive forgiveness. Or we will remain unrepentant and we have put a barrier up between us and God. If we make sex and sexuality who we are and therefore find it impossible to repent of, then we have put up the barrier, we've locked the door, and we've thrown away the key. That is why this is important. If no sex is a sin, then we should all repent and let loose. But if it is, then it's a very different story. The loving response is to guide anyone away from temptation to sin, whatever that sin is, and towards repentance. However, there is a category error in the other direction. To not acknowledge primary attraction to those of the same sex as difference, we devalue the call and the struggle of those who experience that same-sex attraction. For some people like Jackie Hill Perry, Rebecca McLaughlin, and Sean Doherty, being primarily same-sex attracted, they have found other sex spouses. However, many same-sex attracted Christians such as David Bennett, Ed Shaw, Sam Albury, Vaughan Roberts, and Paul Chamberlain, some of whom spoke in the Synod uh, meeting last week, have accepted the God-ordained place for sex and definition of marriage and follow a celibate lifestyle, lifestyle. Paul continues by touching on this difference in verse 6. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. Paul recognizes that not all face the same situation, and a one-size-fits-all does not work. Especially, in verse 8, now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Paul was single, possibly widowed, we don't know, but he did not marry again, if so. Jesus was never married. He had a sexuality. Let me say that again. Jesus was fully human and had a sexuality, but he never had sex. Sorry, Dan Brown. Jesus was a single Jewish man, and singleness is as valued in Scripture as marriage. And Paul addresses it here in these verses, in verse 9. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. 
The second reason given for marriage in the Book of Common Prayer marriage service is to avoid fornication in that wonderful old language. Marry if you must have sex because it is the right place for it, but do not marry for sex. Marriage is a lifelong commitment and attractions and passions wane and change can overcome the mind and the soul. Just look at the Chatterley's. Marriage is more than a contract and it's more than physical intimacy. Paul then goes on to address the original question. Should men give up on women altogether as a matter of purity and holiness? And he explains in detail that both marriage and singleness are valued life choices. Verse 32. I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. So a calling to singleness allows concentration on the Lord undivided by partnership concerns. That is why life in a Christian community is of single people. It is the medieval argument for single celibate priests in the Roman Catholic Church. Single devotion to the Lord in their calling. In verse 33, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world. How can he please his wife? And his interests are divided. A married person seeks to please their spouse, or at least they should. I learned late that the first ministry is to your family. They came before ordination, and one lets everyone down if the foundations on which you stand and to whom promises have been made are ignored. I still get this wrong, as I'm sure Sarah would tell you frequently, but I keep trying to navigate it well. Verses 34 to 35 addresses that singleness provides the opportunity not to have to think about others in the same way. No need to engage in the compromise or accommodations that are necessary when involved with others. I enjoyed living alone, which I did for about three years. I wanted to get married and have enjoyed 25 years nearly, but I recognised the freedom of singleness. Unfortunately, that time wasn't applied to the Lord because it was before I was saved. Andrew Bunt writes this, the gift of singleness isn't a superpower, but it is an opportunity. For those of us who currently have the gift, whether we think we'll have it for life or think at some point it will be exchanged for the gift of marriage, let's receive what we've been given and embrace the opportunities it brings. So this finally brings us to the second but probably most key uh, question. How can the church support those who are single, whomever one is attracted to? Now there's a wealth of suggestions about how we can do this well, and that would probably be a separate sermon. So this series demands something specifically related to same-sex attracted Christians who seek to live out the traditional teaching of the church. Living Out is an organization set up by same-sex attracted Christians who have chosen that celibate life. And their website provides much helpful material. Now, the PCC, in January, started to consider the Living Out Audit, which is 10 questions a church can ask itself about how to be a radically inclusive church. It was that question and the... um, ill-preparedness 
of the room to feel to address it that this sermon series came into being and on the 4th of March as a PCC we'll be meeting to explore this a bit more. Now, the audit is a series of questions but what I'd like to do is to close by making them into a series of statements about Christchurch. It's about consistency, hospitality and openness. Number one, our church family meetings should include people who are labelled LGBTQ plus and or are same-sex attracted. Number two, all in our church should know that we all experience sexual brokenness and all are being encouraged to confess their own sexual sins. Number three, same-sex sexual relationships should never be mentioned in isolation from other sinful patterns of behaviour or from the forgiveness offered to all through faith in Christ crucified. Number four, all in our church are hearing the same call to radical self-sacrifice of themselves in response to God's giving of himself in Jesus. You are not your own. Number five, a godly Christian sexual orientation will never prevent uh, someone from exercising their spiritual gifts or serving in leadership in our church. However, I would add to that that all in leadership should consider our own model of holiness and keep ourselves accountable to God through prayer and accountability partners and recognise the authority under which we hold our roles. Number six, God's gifts of either singleness or marriage will be equally promoted, valued, and should be practically supported in our church family's life together. Number seven, church family members should instinctively share meals, homes, holidays, festivals, money, family life with others from different backgrounds and life situations to them. Number eight, no one will be pressurized into expecting or seeking any healing or change that God has not promised any of us until the renewal of all things. Number nine, all in our church are encouraged to develop an identity founded first and foremost on their union with Christ. And number ten, derogatory language or stereotyping attitudes towards anyone is not to be tolerated either up front or in conversation between church family members. I hope that you agree. I hope you can also see that for many of those, we have much work to do. But the Lord calls us to philoxenia, the love of the stranger or the other, whoever they are. Lord, please help us to be radically inclusive and radical, passionate, obedient disciples for Christ. Amen.